0: How you doing tonight? I wasn't sure anyone would show up. Well, you guys didn't get the memo or what? Uh, the, the, the big thing's happening tomorrow. I, I was uh, at the Rob Bell, uh, I don't even know what they even call it, talk, last night and hung out with him a little bit. And uh, he's coming back to be at Woodland Hills Church tomorrow. And he's just a master communicator. I encourage you to come by and, and uh, listen to him tomorrow. Um, I also want you to really consider being part of one of the small groups Uh, temporary small groups for this compassion by command because it's going to be fantastic Uh, we have had the issues of poverty on the front burner for some time but uh, we've never had the kind of concerted effort that we're going to put into this this time this fall for 10 weeks and it is just going to be an intense very informative somewhat confrontational for some revolutionary study and so i want to encourage you to consider leading one of these small groups uh, we need people to step up and say, okay, I'll host this. We do all the training. It's easy. Uh, but without leaders, it just doesn't happen. So please pray about that and, and fill out the bulletin and turn it in. Fill up the thing in the bulletin and uh, turn it in. Now, what I want to do tonight is uh, something we've never done here. Uh, you know, we've done it here, but never in a church service. Um, I was kind of wrestling with what I should do here. Uh, I, right about here would be good, don't you think? Yeah. Okay, there. Right, you you, you, you kind of get a, uh, you're getting a little inkling what's going on here, aren't you? So I was thinking, what should we do here on a Saturday night? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to like, go ahead in the book of Luke, because then you guys would be ahead uh, of the rest of the church, and that I'd be doing two sermons every weekend. That's not going to work for me. So I was saying, Lord, what would you like us to do here on a Saturday night? We're kind of a small, intimate crowd. And then this tornado hit. And so I, it occurs to me there's a teaching moment here. And I want to have a Q& A time, if I could. Uh, so I want you to already be thinking of questions. Now the questions can really be about anything, and we're just going to go take questions and, and whatever. It'll uh, we'll, we'll come 6:30 or 6: 20, or whenever we peter out, we'll stop. Uh, but it can be about anything. But I'm going to focus first on this what I think is something of a teaching opportunity, especially for those who are maybe new to this church, about the problem of evil. One of my favorite topics, as some of you know. And uh, this tornado provided an occasion for that. So I want us to think about this. And while I'm thinking, you will be thinking about questions. And unfortunately, you know, for our Q&As, we have people write them out. And, you know, so you don't have to stand up and actually be the one who, you know, everyone knows you're asking that question. But... This is sort of spur of the moment, and so we're not being very fancy. So you have to step up and talk in the microphone, okay? So be getting your courage up and getting your questions ready. So on Wednesday, four tornadoes hit Minnesota. They're all pretty minor as tornadoes go, but they caused some property damage. Some of you know about this. It was on the news uh, that uh, a local pastor, and I just have a policy. It was very public, uh, but just a policy of not naming names uh, from the pulpit. But, but it was on two different news stations, that the, the pastor a, a gave an interpretation of one of the tornadoes, one of the damage, some of the damage that was done by one tornado. Uh, it turns out that one uh, occurred over Minneapolis and uh, did some damage to the convention center, but also uh, toppled the steeple of Central Lutheran Church. And... It happens that the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the ALCA, was meeting in that building. It happens that one of the topics they were discussing, which they ultimately ended up voting to affirm, was being open to uh, gays and committed relationship uh, being ordained in the ministry. And I'm not here to comment on that issue. The issue I want to talk about is that this uh, person... And this kind of thinking is pretty widespread, offered the interpretation that this was a sign from God, a warning. And um, and there was a warning to the ELCA uh, not to condone sin. Now, the reason why that sort of thing concerns me greatly, when someone, with all the best intentions, and I respect the person, and does a lot of good kingdom ministry, but when we interpret natural phenomenon like this, whether it's a tornado or anything else, and and believe that we can discern the hand of God in these natural disasters or whatever they may be. That sets in motion a process of thinking that can sometimes come back to bite people in very, very difficult ways. Uh, One example, and I I give this in the beginning of my book, Is God to Blame?, is an example of a young lady uh, named Melanie, who uh, had for uh, several years, actually, her and her husband had prayed to get, get a child. The doctors ended up doing some tests, said, I'm sorry, you guys just are not going to be able to have a child. You have to think about adoption. And no sooner did that happen when she got pregnant. And so they were testifying how this was a miracle baby. And it still pains me when I enter back into that moment of, of discussing this with her. And that this was a miracle baby. And the pregnancy went fine, but somehow in the process of delivering this child, uh, the child was killed. The cord got wrapped around its neck and it was stillborn. So here, this young lady believes that God gave her a precious gift and the baby dies in childbirth. She went to professor of theology and asked why did this happen? And The professor of theology says, well, God's telling you something. There's a lesson, there's a message. Something you're supposed to get out of this. She goes, well, what is it? He says, well, I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that when you get the message, when you, when you learn the lesson, then, then uh, uh, perhaps then God will bless you with another child. Now, what that did for her is she believed that, and she went on. But actually, the, the presenting issue for her when she spoke with me was that she had lost all passion for God. And uh, she was wondering how, why that was, and that's when I found out, I asked, when did this lack of passion begin? Because she said she used to be so vibrant, and it was right around the time that her baby died. And my response to her was this, it, it doesn't surprise me a whole lot that you've lost a little bit of passion for God. Because if, 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 I'm, inter- if I'm hearing the story you were told straight, God blessed you with a child, only to kill your child in order to teach you a lesson, but he doesn't tell you what the lesson is. But maybe if you figure it out, then he'll give you a baby back. Kind of hard to get excited about that picture of God, if you ask me. That would take the wind out of my sail a little bit. And so we were able to talk around that issue and bring a different sort of interpretation to that issue. You know, here are some of the questions that I would raise about this interpretation of this tornado, just to look at this rather minor object lesson compared to the one I just gave you. And just be thinking about this and be thinking of questions you want to ask. But, but, uh, and, and, and for those of you who read my blog on my own website, uh, this will be a little bit repetitious, uh, so excuse us, but it only lasts for 10 minutes and then you can ask questions, so uh, bear with me. But here's a here's a question. What about all the other damage that the tornadoes did? What, what's the message there? What, was God angry at the convention center? Uh, you know, someone, someone said that Rod Stewart was going to supposed to be singing that night or singing the night before. Maybe God doesn't like his music. I don't know. But but, but what was the message there? Or there's a school in North Branch that got damaged. What was uh, what was God communicating there? Was the was that school maybe too affirming of of, of gay kids or something? What was the message there? And if you're going to ask that question, broaden it out to what happened that, that, that same day in other parts of the country with tornadoes. Uh, that same day, around the same time, down in Illinois, another church was destroyed by a tornado. Uh, it was odd. The only thing that was left standing was the church steeple. The church had been there for over 100 years. The only thing left standing was a steeple. What is the message there? I don't know anything about the theology of that church, but, but there must be a point there, right? If there's a, if, if there's a point to all of this, well, then... We're very much kind of like reading tea leaves or something, trying to discern the pattern in the tea leaves. And uh, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's kind of magical thinking. Uh, what about all the other disasters that happened? Why did this child die but not that child? This house gets struck but not that house. What's the message? What's the point? I ended up doing a little bit of research on this, just a little bit. Not that it, I it felt it was that important, but just to sort of dig into it. And I wondered, you know, can you see a pattern? Does anyone discern a pattern and see that that it tends to be people who are the most sinful that that get struck with natural disasters? Uh, I haven't noticed that yet. But I just thought I'd limit the study to tornadoes, so I did research on where tornadoes tornadoes strike. Maybe it will turn out that tornadoes tend to strike more in the most sinful places. I'm thinking Las Vegas is going to get it, you know. Well, it turns out it's right in the Bible Belt. Oklahoma is the number one place where, where tornadoes do the most damage. That doesn't fit the paradigm, I don't think. Unless God's really mad at them for some other reason, maybe. maybe now it's anyone's guess. Let's try to discern the hand. And it turns out that the states, this was, it really was interesting, the states which are the most liberal in terms of gay rights, Massachusetts, Vermont, they get the least tornadoes. How does that fit the paradigm? See, if you're going to claim to be able to decrypt the meaning of one tornado, it seems like you've got to be able to, if it's going to have any kind of plausibility, you have to be able to generalize it and say, well, here's here's proof that this is the interpretation. That'll be a pattern. But in fact, the pattern you find is the opposite of what you'd expect to find if God, in fact, is out there kind of spinning tornadoes out to warn or get people uh, to pay for sin or anything of the the sort. Uh, And the other thing I wonder is this. I mean, you can certainly find in the Old Testament examples of God uh, punishing people with natural disasters. Got that. That's Old Testament. But it was clear to the people under a covenantal arrangement what he was doing. There was an arrangement there, a covenant. This is my spokesperson. He's going he's to warn you a lot ahead of time and tell you that if you don't change, this is what will happen. And then here are the consequences that will happen if, that, if, if you don't change. There was a cu- clear communication about, about that. But if God's trying to give a message, why is this communication so ambiguous? Why does it have to be left to speculation and guesswork? Uh, is, is, is it, you know, I mean, uh, sorry, but, but if you're going to spank your kid, tell them why. And don't just spank them and hope that some neighbor will guess the right motive. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's just good pedagogy. Uh, tell your kid why they're being punished. But in this case, we're just getting zapped randomly. And then certain people once in a while just offer a guess as to what's going on. And it tends to be that we have all this data, you know, about natural disasters, and it seems to be kind of random, and it, I don't know, but it seems like tornadoes are, are more defined in terms of their frequency by, by where people are located rather than how sinful they are. I, I'm just speculating on it maybe, but, but it, it seems like it's more, where we, I've noticed a pattern that where hot air and cold air tend to come together the most frequently, you have the, more, the most tornadoes. Uh, and why can't we just leave it at that? But when we start then reading our own, what happens is we, we, we put our own theology on the world, and when misfortunes happen according to our presuppositions, we'll notice it. We delete all the rest. And then we end up, well, we can end up if we're not careful. Uh, our interpretations tend to be self-serving. When our home gets hit, it doesn't mean the same thing as when that home gets hit because that home, there were sinners uh, than, than I am, or they're doing something that I don't approve of, or in my theology, they ought to be getting more punished. And so it tends to be a rather self-serving sort of theology. Two verses that were offered to support the interpretation given for this tornado were were these. These are the two main verses. Uh, In in Mark 4, first of all, uh, we read about Jesus on the boat when the storm hit. And uh, it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in, in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, "'Teacher, don't you care if we drowned?' He got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Why uh, do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other. And here's the part that was quoted. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And from this it was concluded that Jesus controls all the wind and the waves and the storms. And so if everything is controlled by Jesus, well then, everything that happens must have a Jesus motive to it. And therefore, this church having a steeple uh, toppled was a Jesus thing, and the message is blah, blah, blah. Of course, that can really backfire because then that means it's Jesus who took your baby. It means it's Jesus who gave you cancer. It means it's Jesus who's given you your decrippling disease. It's Jesus who uh, maybe split apart your marriage. It's Jesus who made you blind. It's Jesus who gave your child leukemia. Go on and on and on. Now, look at at that passage. It's interesting to me that, that, yes, the disciples say even the wind and the waves obey him. But they say that after Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. In fact, he, he uses the word be quiet. He silenced them. And the word that's used there is the same word that Jesus often uses when he would uh, confront demons. He would silence them. He would rebuke them and silence them. And the implication is that Jesus is here treating a storm like it was a demon. The implication I submit to you is that, here's the thing, if Jesus was already controlling the storm, why would he need to rebuke it? The the rebuke is the exception. He rebukes it precisely because he's not controlling it. And then he suggests that what is controlling is something demonic. This world is under a curse, and if we weren't under this curse, we would have authority like Jesus just demonstrated there. And it's because of spiritual oppression that nature works against us rather than for us, and it has dominion over us rather than us having dominion over, over it. And that doesn't mean that every storm has a demon behind it. I'm not going to say that a demon toppled that steeple either, but it does mean that, that the, the, the fact that nature now has a destructive power to it that we can't control... Is, as it, that means that there's things that are resisting God's good, loving purpose in this world. So I submit to you that the passage, if anything, means the opposite of what it was a, a taken to mean as this person interpreted the uh, tornado for us. A second passage that he quoted was I, uh, Isaiah, or John 13. No, actually, it should be Luke 13. It should be Luke 13. Uh, and uh, it, it says this. Or those 18 who died... When the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And this person took the, this passage to support his interpretation of the natural disaster—that that, that uh, uh, all calamities are the result of God punishing people. And so we need to repent in the light of calamities. Otherwise, we're going to perish just like the other people who got judged. Now, I I want to submit to you that the passage, I would argue, means the exact opposite of that. Uh, Can you put it up again? Read it carefully here. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them. There's this tower that fell over and killed these people. And actually, Jesus had just given the same point on an earlier massacre, uh, destruction, when when Pilate had slaughtered a bunch of Galileans. This is the second of of his illustrations. But he says, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Apparently, the people were going, ha, they got their due. (laughs) God really judged them. He just knocked over that tower, and it crushed them. And Jesus says, no. No, but here's what you ought to be concerned with. What is your own relationship with God? In other words, as I read this passage, he's saying, look at, don't go around trying to interpret natural disasters as God's punishment on people. Here's what you ought to be concerned with. What is your own relationship with God? Because if you, if you go to your death without a relationship with God, you're going to perish just like them. So if anything, I would want to say, you know, do you think that the folks in the, in, in, the, in the church at the ELCA were worse sinners than any of the rest of us? No, what we ought to be concerned with is what's our own relationship with God? Do you think that the people in Indonesia where they lost a quarter million with a tsunami, that that, they they were worse sinners than us? No. The Christian attitude ought to be the one that Paul advocates in 1 Timothy when he says, here's a saying that everybody should repeat, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Jesus says, teaches us, don't go around considering your sins to be the specks and the other people's sins to be the two-by-fours. rather, your sins, you consider to be two-by-fours. Other people's sins, you consider to be specs. And don't go around picking out specs when you've got two-by-fours. He reverses that whole judgmental tendency that we have. The real danger in interpreting the signs of storms and cancers and babies dying during childbirth is that we can very easily, and I'm not accusing any particular person of doing this, but the danger is that we can take that and we become judges. And we think we know the hand of God. And it's always those people who deserved it. That mindset can come around and bite us. I submit to you that in a fallen world, it is fallen. Nature itself, Paul says in Romans 8, is corrupt. It's groaning. The whole world is groaning. groaning. And in a world like this, stuff just happens. It just happens. Towers fall over. If the world wasn't fallen and oppressed by demonic powers, I don't think towers would fall over. I don't think you'd have rulers massacring people. I don't think you'd have storms trying to drown people. But we live in a fallen world and stuff just happens. The good news is not that we can imagine Jesus sending all the storms and disasters and babies dying, but rather the good news is that whatever happens, two things, whatever happens, you can know God is in it to redeem, bring redemptive value out of it. In all things, he's working together for the better. In all things, he's not causing all things for the better, but no matter what happens, he's in it bring a redemptive value out of it. He brings a purpose to events. Even stuff that's horrendous is an infinitely wise God. And he says, oh, here's, here's the good that we can put this to. And our job then is to be looking at how to redeem good out of bad situations. The other piece of good news, and then I'm gonna open up the floor to questions. The other good news is it won't always be like this. And that is good news. It won't always be like this. It won't always be like this. No. We're, we're in a war zone now, but but he'll be victorious. That's the good news. He'll win, and someday wipe away every tear from our eye, and there'll be no more babies that die in childbirth. There'll be no more storms that topple uh, church steeples and kill people. There'll be no more mudslides that bury schools of children uh, in a swoop. There'll be no more earthquakes that swallow up people, and no more tsunamis that destroy cities. Then the creation will be as the creation was supposed to be. Meantime, we're in a war zone. We must stay humble center on our relationship with God and the ministry that he gives us and not try to go beyond that and read our own theologies into natural disasters. Okay, it can, your questions can be about that topic uh, or generally the problem of evil or it can be on anything. We've got about a half hour here to talk if you want, so uh, go ahead. Who will be first? Come on down. And try to keep your questions brief, Okay. And, and we can't go into a long dialogue here, so please ask your question, and then just let me try to take a stab at it. And, and, and if, you have, if it wasn't adequate, talk to me later.
1: Okay. Right. Um, I agree with what you're saying. Um, Can you tell me your name? Mary. Mary. Hi, Mary. Hi. Um, I would like to hear, I don't know, your thoughts on the other side of the coin um, as far as, like, God using natural things to speak to people, like He does a lot in the Old Testament. Um, can God use tornadoes to speak through people or to speak to people? Okay. Or is that just an Old Testament sort of thing?
0: Okay, very, very good, very good question. Uh, I can't say that God can't do anything. I mean, you know, I, he, he reserves the right to do whatever he wants, and, and so I'm not going to. I don't have a metaphysical rule: no tornadoes allowed. I just take it from the New Testament that I don't have any reason to think or to claim to know that any particular tornado or natural disaster was an example of that. Uh, If if Jesus is the central revelation of God, he's, he's the word of God, the image of God, the form of God, the perfect expression of God, the radiance of his glory. If you see me, you see the Father. This is what God's heart is ultimately like. Now we have this full revelation that has to be the interpretive grid through which I look at the rest of the Bible and the rest of the world. And when I have that interpretive grid, I just don't see anything that would lead me to suspect that anything other than spiritual warfare is going on when natural disasters occur. Now, if God can do whatever he wants, he's God. But my question is, how would I know that if he did do that? And, and I, would have to, I think God would have to tell me, Hey, Greg, here's the deal. I'm going to knock over that church steeple because I'm really mad about this. Then I would know, but I wouldn't expect anyone to believe me if I said it out loud. <laughs> You'd have to you know, have a more mass communication kind of thing if, if, if that was uh, going, going, going to happen. So, so the, the main thing is, is what's called epistemological humility. Uh, humility in, in terms of knowing what we don't know and being okay with that. With regard to the Old Testament, that is a much more complex question. I'm in the middle right now, and I, I've said this before, I think. of, of uh, I've been wrestling with this thing for a long, long time. And uh, I'm now uh, in the process about halfway done with a book called Jesus versus Jehovah with a question mark. Jesus versus, because it looks like there's this, sometimes so polarizing and, and looking at how do we understand the Old Testament in the light of what we know about God in the New Testament. Uh, and basically, the, the, here's, here's uh, this is the last thing I'll say because we got to get to other questions. But um, if, uh, it'd be like this. If I'm walking down the street, let's suppose downtown uh, St. Paul, and it's a busy, uh, busy street, so I can't get across to see my wife on the other side, but I see her in the middle of the afternoon, just walking along. And I see my wife there, uh, and, uh, and she's coming upon a, uh, a, a person who looks like they're blind and, and disabled in other ways, like they're, they're crippled, okay? And so he's on the street corner, and they're begging. I, and I'm looking at my wife coming up to this person. I'm thinking, oh, she's just gonna probably pour all of our money in that guy's begging can there, because that's what she does. She, and maybe strike up a conversation with that guy. He's just this warm and compassionate, loving person. Because I know my wife. I've been married 30 years. Just celebrated our 30th anniversary last week. Whoo hoo! Yeah. <laughs> Well, what if all of a sudden I see her walk up there, she talks for her, to him for a second, and all of a sudden she knocks the can out of his hand, knocks off his cap, spits on his face, and kicks him to the ground, mocking him, laughing, and then runs off. Now, I would be like, whoa, what was that? What, 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 what just happened there? No, I, I, since I can't talk to her, I can do one of two things. I either should say, well, gosh, I guess I really didn't know my wife very well. After 30 years, you'd think. But Taryn's out. She's just got this decadent side to her treating, you know, beggars. Or I could say, wait, I know my wife. 30 years, I, I know her. I trust her. Something else must have been going on. And now I'll try to imagine a story which, if it's true, would explain what else was going on. Maybe for all I know, she got recruited as part of an FBI sting operation because that guy really wasn't a blind beggar. He was a terrorist, and she was to cause a diversion or something. However implausible it might seem, it'd be more plausible to me than that. My wife actually was acting like that. That's kind of how I feel with the Old Testament. I see Jehovah just doing some of this you know, stuff that looks so different from what Jesus did. Well, I'm not, I, I can even say, gosh, I guess Jesus doesn't tell the whole story about God. God's got this really nasty streak, you know, he was having going through a bad period back then or whatever. Or I'll say, you know what, I believe this is what God really is like. He's a God who dies for sinners on Calvary, praying for their forgiveness. And then I'll say, you know, what else was going on back there? And try to imagine a story which, if true, would explain that. And that's kind of what this, what I've tried to do there. But I don't have time to go into that right
2: now. Okay, good. Next question over here. Hello there. Hi, Greg. Uh, Tell everyone your name. Sandy is my name. Uh, you don't have to answer this now if you don't want to. Well, yes. But I'll throw out the most general form of the question. Okay. What, how might one change or alter one's theology as a result of the Holocaust or genocide? Okay.
0: How might one change their theology as a result of the Holocaust? Should or, or, or should one? Uh, change their theology in the light of the Holocaust uh, or in, in, in any other kind of form of massive genocide. I used to teach a course at Bethel called Theology After the Holocaust. So I'll take a stab at the question. Um, And what I, you know, the the Holocaust was sort of the paradigmatic example of evil because here you're dealing with, uh, you know, the the very same people that God brought out of Egypt. And you have all the hero stories about how God protected them. Now they fall into the hands of Nazis and six million uh, are are exterminated. One million of them, children under the age of five. It was just unthinkable. You know, here's the thing. There's something about the magnitude of that kind of evil, which... On a logical basis, it shouldn't change much because we should be aware that the world is is full of evil anyways. But when you come in contact with that dimension of evil, what happened in Rwanda, what happened in Germany, what's what's, what's happening in parts of Africa even right now, and, uh, you know, there's just, it's unthinkable stuff. That ought to, that ought to do something to us. Uh, When that dimension of evil is in our face, See, I, I, I believe your theology has got to be speakable in hell. Uh, if, you can't state your, if you can't hold to your the- theological beliefs while you're right next to the worst form of evil, then to that degree, your, your theological beliefs are being purchased at the expense of shallowness. And so we try to block ourselves from evil, and it's really easy to have a la-la theology when you're not watching the little girl getting raped or you're not watching the kid getting incinerated, let alone six million being incinerated. And so the point of this course was that whatever we say about God and God's will in the world and God's role in providence, we, ought, we have to be able to say it standing right next to a concentration camp, standing right next to the stoves with a stench of burning flesh. We, we have to be able to say it to the mother whose daughter was kidnapped and never found. And, and it shouldn't have to happen to us before we get that serious about evil. And this is a, It often happens that you know, someone holds to a theology; it's just working for them. But then, when it's their kid who dies, or their husband who leaves, or I, I've even seen theologies crack on rather shallow things by global pain standards. Um, but when it happens to them, all of a sudden, it's like, "Whoa! How could God do this?" And my my feeling is, I you know, y'all want to have compassion on that. But on the other hand, why did it take happening to you for you to ask that question? Because this is happening every day all over the world. We live in a world in which, for a good portion of people, life is a perpetual nightmare. And our theology ought to be able to be spoken, has to be able to be spoken, in the face of the worst nightmare, like the Holocaust. So those kind of things sometimes serve to wake us up and and do do some rethinking uh, about our our views of God and, and things of that sort. Excellent question. Yes. Hey, Greg. Um... And if you're not able to come to the microphone, but want to ask the question, just raise your hand, and we'll bring the microphone to you. Billions of people have never had the opportunity to know Jesus. Young people, babies, of course, never had the opportunity. There are other people that grew up in such dysfunctional situations where they never really knew what, that, what it was about. Right. So how does God ultimately deal and treat those folks? Oh, excellent question. Um, so the question is, they always ask me to repeat the question because they're taping it. The question is, uh, you know, billions of people uh, never have a chance to hear about Christ. Or if they hear about Christ, uh, the Christ they hear about is not, nothing that would be attractive. Uh, you know, the, the representation of Christ is, is just sometimes uh, cruel. And, um, and so how does God treat those people or people who were born before Christ or, or never reached with the gospel or died before the age where they could understand anything or, or are born mentally incapacitated? It, 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 that whole gamut. And here's, here's, here's kind of how I approach that. Um, on the one hand, I, I want to hold two things in tension here, really. On the one hand, uh, you know, the, 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 the thrust of the New Testament is to say, believe on Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And that's not a magical formula. That's rather enter into a trusting, faith-filled covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Make him Lord of your life. Live in that way. And you will be saved. The word saved there is not just escape hell, but you'll be transformed. The the shalom of God will begin to invade your life as you walk with him and trust in him and grow. Uh, And that is a matter of urgency. There is... The wholeness of God now and forever comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And so I want to be evangelistic and have a heart for the lost and to reach out to people and, and to share the gospel and to try to bring as many people as possible into the good news. On the other hand, I find a lot of good biblical reasons to believe that God isn't limited to that formula he just gave me. God is God. And so I find all sorts of people in the Old Testament who didn't know Jesus, but they end up showing up in, Romans, or in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, and uh, here's the thing. Jesus says, you know, no man goes to the Father except through me, Right? And that, that uncovers everybody, and yet there are people who didn't know him who end up in heaven, which tells me that more people are covered by the work of Christ than who know about Christ. We can never limit the grace of God. And, and so um, I, I look at all people with a sense of hope. In fact, Paul makes some incredible statements sometimes. He says, as all were in Adam, so all are in Christ, and, and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And I think he's they're expressing the purpose of God, God's purpose to drive towards this universal embrace, which gives me hope. It just just gives me hope. Paul says in Acts 17 that God, in the dividing up of the nations, he works in their times and boundaries and in every every human heart to get people to grope for him and possibly find him, though in fact he's not far from any of us. Now, obviously, most of the cultures and countries that Paul's talking about in Acts 17 at that time didn't know Jesus. The gospel hadn't spread that far. And yet Paul says they can find him there, which tells me that God judges people on the basis of the orientation of their heart. Uh, he, He knows you know, what we, what we believe is, is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the whole human person. God knows the whole person. It says in Samuel that uh, we look on the outside, but God judges the heart. And, so, and that's something we can never know. It's hard enough to even know your own heart. And so our job is to love and to bless and to preach and to share and trust that God will always do the right thing. Uh, with regard to kids who die before the age of accountability, or people are mentally incapacitated. There's different speculations you can give there and you give evidence you know, for it. Uh, I, I just am content to say I'm going to trust God on that I don't think anyone will ever be lost by accident oh if only he'd been born in the right place at the right time oh, doggone it had a good heart had to let him go if only, I mean, really, if only a jerk hadn't shared Christ with him, if only he was a good person, be, that jerk just kind of really turned him off. If only the father hadn't abused them, then they wouldn't have this corrupted idea of God. If only, if only they'd been baptized, right, or, you know, whatever. I really don't think anyone's going to go to hell on a technicality. <laughs> the thief on the cross, I mean, my, my gosh, it's like, Lord, can I be with you today in paradise? And I can just see Jesus saying, well, what was your mode of baptism? <laughs> Did you say this right, prayer? Okay, so uh, I want to balance the urgency of of the gospel and believing in Jesus with this wideness in God's mercy. Amen. Over here.
3: Hi, my name is Kim. Hi, Kim. Hi. Uh, My question is about forgiveness. And... um, You know, I know that Jesus teaches us that if someone sins against you and comes to you and asks to be forgiven, you know, forgive them seven times 70 or whatever. Yes. Um, But then, uh, what do you do with the people who don't ask for forgiveness? Uh The people who are evil to you, um, they don't ask forgiveness. And in addition to that, God doesn't offer blanket forgiveness and take everyone into heaven, only those who come and have asked for forgiveness. Sure. So why, sometimes I feel like you encourage us to forgive people, Uh and I feel like the church does in general, to forgive people who've harmed us but have not asked to be forgiven. Sure. And that we're supposed to do blanket forgiveness when even God doesn't do blanket forgiveness.
0: Okay, very good good question, Kim. I appreciate that. Um, So the question is... uh, uh, how, how should we forgive when the other person doesn't want forgiveness or doesn't ask for forgiveness? Uh, and the point was made that even God doesn't do that, um, that, uh, uh, that there has to be a response on our part uh, for that to happen. Here in a nutshell, I mean, it's a very good question. Um, the quickest way I could answer that is this. As I read the Scripture, I see almost like two forms of forgiveness in operation. The the concept of forgiveness is just release, to release a debt. Um, And uh, in in that concept, I think it's, just on a psychological basis, good for us to release all debts. I also think it's a biblical command that we're to to forgive. Part of loving your enemies is just releasing them. Uh, Paul says in in Romans 12, Never exact vengeance. Never retaliate. uh, But rather, leave all wrath to God. And that's just a matter of saying, whatever you're angry about, release it. Let go of it, and God will take care of it. Trust that God will judge. Whoever needs to get their due, they've got to do. That's not our job. When we hang on to bitterness, we won't forgive, then we're playing judge. And whenever we play judge, we are swallowing poison. I know from experience. Even without knowing it, I had this unforgiveness in my heart towards my stepmother. And that, that is cancer. It's spiritual cancer. It corrupts you. You think you, you, you stay mad at one person and you can compartmentalize it, but you can't. It starts to seep over into everything. It starts to affect your whole, it jaundices your whole view of the world. It's good for your soul, and I think it's a biblical command to release everything, to let go of it. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that the relationship is forgiven. It doesn't mean that forgiveness has actually occurred relationally. You, you have released it in your soul, but if the person doesn't receive it, well, that, it still is on them. Uh, and so, so forgiveness has not been completed. That's true. And God will have to take care of that. But you can't take care of that. If you try to... When, when, we, 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 we hang on to anger when something that's valuable to us has been devalued, especially ourselves. And the anger is a way of saying what you did was wrong, and it's understandable. You abused me, you, you betrayed me, you hurt me, and that's what the anger is. And and that's that that is not sin in and of itself. But Paul says, "Be angry and don't sin." This is Ephesians four twenty five and four twenty four and four four twenty five and four twenty six. He says, "Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger." In other words, get rid of it. And then in verse 26, he says, And don't give the devil a foothold. Because the minute you go to bed with that and start ruminating on that anger, you're giving the devil a foothold. He's the prince of darkness. He's conceal it. And he just starts working his little poison and cancer there. So for our sakes, it's good. to Whatever, whatever it is we're angry about, it's understandable. But if you can get all your worth from God, you no longer need to be trying to insist that the person give you back the worth they stole by whatever they did with for you. Get your life from God. Release the cancer. Hopefully, do all you can do to reconcile with the person, but sometimes people just don't want to hear it. You can't take responsibility for that, so you let that go. But also, you don't hang on to the anger. I think that's a very important uh, principle to live by. I I think that's that's God's attitude as well. I think Jesus died for all the sins of the world. Now, whether a person receives that or not, whether it gets completed and brings wholeness in their life, is up to them. We're free agents. But I really don't think that it's the act... Really, in principle, it's all been paid for. It's like a blank check. And so in that sense, people aren't lost. They don't go to destruction because of their sin. They go to the destruction because they won't receive forgiveness. It stills on them. But that's not because God won't forgive them. I, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I think that God honors that prayer. But it doesn't do you a bit of good if you don't receive it. Very good point. Are you next? We've got time for like two more, maybe.
2: My name my name's Steve and Steve, and, and, and the
0: question is that when Adam and Eve left the garden, did they have an understanding of the propitiatory nature of God? And was that passed on
2: as faith? And did Adam, no, Abraham, when he said that he was a friend of God, was he just confirming that God was a God that would cover sin?
0: Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it's hard to know, at least I, I don't know, the extent to which Adam and Eve knew the. The, 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 the propitiation means the concept of uh, sacrifice and, and that brings about forgiveness. You know, Jesus was in Romans 3, the propitiation of our sins. Um, it doesn't seem to me that they had very much knowledge of that. Uh, there's, I, I don't see much evidence of that, or even of, of Abraham, or even throughout the Old Testament. Um, there is, you know, some, some, some anticipations of Christ, but they certainly didn't have this full concept of, of God taking upon himself. It wasn't the full concept of God taking upon himself, uh, suffering the consequences of our sinfulness. Um, they did have the concept, at least after the law of Moses, that to break covenant with God was death. That's what the sacrifices were, were to, to, to remind them of, that when we break covenant with the God of life, we are bringing about death on ourselves. So they got that. It wasn't. It, 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 there was echoes of an understanding that someday, somehow, God would Himself become the suffering servant in Isaiah fifty-three and would suffer the consequences for our covenant breaking. But I think that was, to the extent that they had that, it was very vague. Uh, it was pretty ambiguous. Yes. I guess you're next. Whoever's up the microphone gets the next shot. Greg, my yes. name is
2: Ed. Unless Ed, Dan. Ed. Ed. I'm Ed. All right. Hi, Ed. A less weighty question. As a physician, it has for years troubled me to hear people use the word miracle to apply to a fortunate outcome, say a fortunate medical, or even a very fortunate medical outcome, that nonetheless could be reasonably explained. Mm. In 30 years of practice, I only saw one event that approached the idea of a miracle. Everything else was yeah. At best.
0: Yeah. Just I, I a real so, good
2: outcome. Sure. So the question, what can a, um, uh, you know, more rational or critically <laughs> thinking <laughs> sure. Christian say to another person or another Christian when they kind of starry eyedly say, it was a miracle. Yeah, yeah. To make them think, well, maybe it was just a good okay, blessing.
0: Th- th- it's a very good question. Uh, Ed. The question is kind of what defines a miracle. Uh, And isn't the word overused? And whenever anything fortunate goes our way, uh, that maybe defies the odds by a little bit. Sometimes people say it's a miracle. Then you have a bunch of things that people claim are miracles, which uh, are are very questionable. Uh, Some of the things that are claimed in various revivals or whatever. It's it's a good question. There there is no absolute way to answer that, however, because it's it's, it's kind of verbal. I mean, you know, the the, the word... uh, the meaning of any word is the use it has in a culture, and the word miracle has been cheapened greatly, and that's what you're grieving over. It's like people say, it's a miracle because you went you know, to the Valley Fair and found the best parking spot. Uh, you know, and people talk like that. It's a miracle. You know, and, and So here's how I kind of approach it. Um, I, I do wish that you know, the word miracle, like the word love, I wish it meant something, you know, that, it, it, that it had a more specific use. Unfortunately, you can't, you know, it's Pandora's box. Once the word gets cheap, and you just got to find a different word. Um, But what I I encourage people to do is this. I mean, sometimes people say, well, they'll testify about a miracle that God did in their life. And really, there's other ways of explaining it. On the one hand, I might be in a situation where I want to help kind of maybe, you know, make it so they're not so miracle-dependent by, you know, offering the possibility that maybe, you know, there's another explanation. On the other hand, however, I love the faith that is that, that thanks God for everything. And so the Bible says every good gift comes from the Father above. And so when, when, when things are just fortunate, I still want to be thankful for that, because if it wasn't for God's goodness pervading the earth, that wouldn't have happened. If it wasn't for God's goodness pervading the earth, this would be one massive, nasty place. It's nasty enough, even with his uh, blessing, but so I want to give. I, I want to encourage people to be thankful for everything that happens. I wish, that, however, that that didn't always mean that that, that what happened was supernatural. Because we can thank God for good doctors who can you know, treat legs and the rest of the body, and and that stills a you know blessing from God. But it doesn't mean you have to appeal to the supernatural. And then the the the, the real fallout, the negative fallout, is that when when believers see Christians. Uh, use that kind of mindset, it really justifies their unbelief. These people are so gullible, and they get a parking space and praising God for a miracle. And, and so I, my biggest concern is the PR that it does for, for the Christian faith. Okay, these will have to be the last two. Yes?
1: Okay, right before Rock the River. Uh, um, can you
0: uh, tell me your name?
1: Oh, uh, My name is Mary. This
0: is Mary. Hello, Mary.
1: Um, right before Rock the River, I was reading the city pages. I was wondering my why would my friend give me the city pages? This is really a bad magazine. I don't really want to see it. And there was a group that was playing uptown called Lucifer, not spelled Lucifer, but L-U-S-U-R-F-E-R. Okay. So they do Hawaiian music. And then they do And <laughs> Hawaiian calls. music, man, that's really
0: demonic. <laughs> right,
1: right. And they do altar calls to the devil. All I right. just sensed that that was spiritual warfare.
0: Okay, but, so what's like, question?
1: What my question is, is why some Christians don't want to see evil, they don't want to hear evil, and they don't want to feel evil. I, you know they just don't want yeah. nothing to do with the devil, but then God talked about the devil all the time. And right. I'm not saying, like, sure, you know, we should right. get over that, over doing that, yeah, but at the same time, expose sure, the works sure, the okay, darkness. Good.
2: But then I, my
1: question is, why do some Christians just like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know. I just want to stay ignorant. You know? right, right. It just doesn't make sense to me.
2: Okay.
0: Well, so par, part of the thing is, uh, so the question is, why, why do, when it, it seems, uh, as Mary says, that the devil is, is, is rather apparent, if you just have eyes to see and look around, why is it that so many Christians seem to want to plug their ears, uh, close their eyes, you know, see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil, and kind of go on a lot of land? Uh, and there's several motives that maybe we could discern. One is that it, it's, it's just nicer. <laughs> the world's nicer if there's no devil. Uh, you, you know, it, it's, it's, life's hard enough and now you throw demons and the devil in the mix and that complicates things significantly. So, you know, there can be a self-motive. Another motive is that that uh, we're all, to some degree, conditioned by the Western materialistic, naturalistic uh, worldview, uh, which tells us that everything that happens is natural cause and effect. And even though we cerebrally maybe don't believe that, if we're not very intentional at swimming upstream against that that worldview, uh, we're conditioned by it. I believed in the demonic realm and and, and, and the reality of the devil uh, ever since I became a Christian at the age of 17. But I didn't really believe it until I had a, a, a very overt encounter that kind of cracked that. I, I had no idea of how conditioned I was by the Western worldview until I had this encounter that was very supernatural and very demonic. And that's, that's kind of what's got me down this course of saying that believing in spiritual warfare is, is very, very important. But the third motive is sometimes a, a very understandable reason why Christians don't want much to do with the, uh, the demonic. And that's because a lot of what goes on in the name of the demonic is kind of with a miracle. It's the opposite of a miracle. Where some people say a miracle for every little thing that happens, some people see a devil everywhere. And so every headache you have, every little, you stub your toe or whatever, the devil's after me, the devil's going to get me. And so some people look at that and they go, that is lunacy. And so they file all demonic talk under the category of stupidity, just like some file all the miracle talk under the category of stupidity. What we need is kind of a sane, balanced approach uh, to both. It's real, it doesn't mean everything is that, however. Okay, last one, and we'll have to close shop here.
2: Hi, uh, my name's Jennifer. This is kind of a lighter question. Um, It's a TV watching related question. I'm a science fiction geek, Uh and my question is, how do you judge, how do you know, how do you monitor and check yourself about what you should and shouldn't be watching on TV? I mean, pretty much everybody
0: watches TV. I mean, I'm not talking about pornographic stuff, I'm just talking about movies, other things like that. Okay, good. Thanks for the question. The question is, how, how do you judge what, uh, it, you know, you, you should or should not watch on, on television? And I guess my, my response to that is, I mean, for, for parents, that has got to be a very important question. And I would want to you know, reiterate some of the things we've sometimes said around here about that. About uh, kids, especially your young children, are, there's so much research now that shows that they are so influenced by what they see on television. And Christians tend to be pretty good at, 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 maybe maybe not as good as they should be, but at at being offended by increasing sexuality on television and uh, and, and making sure the kids don't watch shows that have uh, 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 very overt, explicit sexual content. We're not as good on other things. We don't have much problem at all with shows that glorify materialism and greed or shows that uh, are incredibly violent or even video games that are incredibly violent. And I think that a responsible Christian who wants to raise their kids in ways that, are, uh, that, that look like Jesus and they reflect Jesus' character really ought to be—without uh, becoming—you can't, you can't isolate your kid, you know, lock him in a closet. They're going to they're gonna see stuff, you just got, so you've got to be pouring into them, but you want to protect them from those more overt kind of things. Um, with regard to adults, I would say this. I mean, there's some there's some black and white categories here that Jesus gives us. Don't look on a person to lust after them and things of that sort. Uh, and that would rule out all, all pornography. Uh, beyond that, here is where I think we have to live by principles and, and honor others' convictions because it shows impact people differently. Uh, in our small group, there's one person who just can't watch any kind of movie that has any kind of violence. It just impacts them and they can't get it out of their head. And so I, we don't go to those kind of shows. Um, but for others, it, it, that doesn't affect them at all. And, and it's like in many areas. Romans 14 is the, is, the, is the key passage here, that we have to trust that God's working in each other's hearts and cut each other's slack and don't flaunt your liberty in front of somebody who's got convictions about it. But on the other hand, the person that has convictions about it shouldn't judge the person who doesn't have convictions about it. And there's a whole lot of gray area here that we just got to be okay with. Those are the kind of issues, I think, that need to be settled in covenant relationships. When we have people involved in our life that are close enough to us to speak into our life, and it may be that they see something we're doing and they say, and they're convicted about it, and they, they they have the right to poke a little bit. Are you sure that that movie is appropriate? Are you sure that you know you're you're you know being responsible with your drinking? Are you sure that that habit's a good habit? And because if we're in a relationship, now if a stranger comes up and does that, I I'm gonna go none of your business. But if people have been living life with me, I know that they're doing it out of love. And they, have a, the, then they should have the right to, maybe I'll push back a little bit, but that's part of the relationship. And uh, so those kind of questions, most of those kind of questions need to be answered in uh, that way. Let me end with a, uh, a word of prayer. I always love these kind of things. It's just good to be talking and go places. Father, give us your wisdom. Uh, and leading out, uh, and we're wrestling with these issues, and understanding the world, and wrestling with questions. Thank you, God, for an atmosphere where it's okay to wonder out loud, and uh, you know, to have iron sharpening iron. I, I, I thank you, God, for that kind of context here. And we acknowledge that every good gift comes from you. Pray, Lord. We pray, Lord God, for the service tomorrow. We pray, God, blessing on Rob Bell as he's going to be traveling down from Winnipeg. Uh, God, to keep them. Keep, we pray uh, protection on them, and keep them safe, and let your anointing be here. Uh, uh, during the service. And now, Lord, just be with us as we leave here to live out your kingdom in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go on and build a kingdom. Maybe I'll see you tomorrow morning. Thanks for tuning into this message from Woodland Hills.
2: We hope you enjoyed it. You can download more sermon resources, including study guides and our entire sermon archive, on our website at whchurch.org. You can also discuss the sermons and connect with other members of the Woodland Hills body on the bridge at bridge.whchurch.org.